Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. And Heavenly Father, that's what we want to do. We want to hear from you through your Word. Our focus today upon you as our wonderful Abba Father is my Abba is masterfully communicative. He expresses himself in clear and compelling ways. That's what I desire that all of us might experience right now. You communicating to us things you want us to know and to do it in a clear, that we can understand it, and in compelling, meaning we'll want to do it, way. Well, thank you for it and count on you for it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In our red letter scripture today, our attention is drawn to what I'm calling a response like no other. A response like no other that we might give anywhere ever. Now let me say as we begin, this is a response we're going to talk about this morning that many of us in the American Christian community are most unfamiliar. This is a response that in fact is completely contrary to the American evangelical response of at least the last 50 years, most of my life. The American evangelical church strategy, beginning with the battles initiated by the moral majority of Jerry Falwell, and the clashes in the culture wars waged by James Dobson's focus on the family ministry, the American church strategy that has seen those elements within it has frequently been the exact opposite of what the red-letter words we will read this morning say. I confess my violation of them, even as I identify the Christian community's much more visible one. Now, how many of you want to hear what I have to say? Well, I would have to say, having said what I've said so far, and with my heart somewhat in my throat, allow me to identify this response like no other that is so frequently like no response we Bible-believing, born-again members of Christ church ever make or even think of making. Jesus attributed this response we're going to talk of this morning to his and our Heavenly Father. Here's how he phrased it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. You'll recognize this is a a passage that comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount. That great exposition of Jesus' teachings at the very beginning of his ministry found in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. So this is Matthew chapter 5. At the 
fifth verse of it, Jesus says, He, that is your Father in heaven, causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. With the understanding that both the sun and the rain are good things. We're not talking about torrential downpours that create trouble, but rain that brings life, that waters the earth, allows things to flourish. Jesus says, He, your Father, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, and now I'm going to ask you to listen to these words very carefully as we try to just expand our understanding of that statement. The Heavenly Father <clears throat> treats all men benevolently. That means with kindness, wanting good for them. The Heavenly Father treats all human beings benevolently. That's what Jesus is saying. He desires all human beings to prosper. He provides what is needed for them to prosper. He responds in this way regardless of how they treat him. Now, give those words just a little time to settle in. Let me read them again. The Heavenly Father treats all men benevolently. There's the sun and the rain. He desires all human beings to prosper. He provides to them all the benefit of the sun and the rain. He provides what is needed for them to prosper, the sun and the rain. And he responds in this way regardless of the way they treat him. Now, I am sure that some, if not all of the people sitting on the hillside that day who heard those words of Jesus were thinking, is he talking about the same God as the God we and our fathers have worshipped? Really? Is he talking about our God, the God of the Jews? Didn't our God destroy the evil world with a flood and burn to cinders the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Didn't our God utterly destroy whole nations before Joshua's invading army when the Israelites entered the promised land? What kind of rewrite of history is Jesus involved in here? Those would be most interesting questions to pose to Jesus. Wouldn't they be? We who know the Old Testament pretty well would have raised them if we had been there ourselves that day. Wouldn't we? Some of you maybe are raising them right now. However, what if Jesus was pointing out to them and to us that rather than rewriting history and saying that those acts of judgment never happened, what if he was saying that from now on, from now on, things are going to be completely different? 
What if Jesus were actually saying that with the coming of the Son of God into the world, the Heavenly Father has entered into an entirely new way of operating? And that he was expecting his people to enter into it with him. And is that not exactly what Jesus was saying? This teaching of Jesus, as I mentioned, came in the section of the Sermon on the Mount where he shared what we could call six great clarifications. Six great clarifications, which all started with this phrase. You have heard it said. You have heard it said up until now. But I say to you something different. You have heard it said. You have heard the stories told ever since you were a little boy or little girl, but I'm now telling you something new. It's not that those things didn't happen. Indeed, they did. They showed the power of God. They showed the righteousness of God. They showed the judgment of God. They showed that the patience of God sometimes comes to an end and judgment falls. They showed all of those things. And they showed that God's people on earth were sometimes used as tools in God's hand to bring that judgment upon evil people. All that's true. It happened. But I say to you today, and let me just paraphrase it, Jesus saying, the Father is doing things differently now from here on than in the past. The Father is responding and will be responding to the people of this world, especially the evil, sinful people in this world, not in judgment but in love. Now that was a bombshell announcement. It probably has a bit of explosive potential right here in this room. I'm surprised that the crowd didn't just get up and leave right then. Say, enough of this. He doesn't even know human history. He doesn't even know the great call of the Jewish people. He doesn't even know the way that God, when men are evil and sinful and and break his laws, there come a time where he just nails them. Did Jesus never even read the Old Testament? Back in his day, it wasn't the Old Testament. It was the whole scriptures. How about all the people sitting there in that day listening to what Jesus said who themselves were just counting the days until the Messiah would come and wipe that evil pagan Roman Empire right off the face of the map? How are they going to respond to these words from Jesus? This one who would call them to follow him. And it was a bombshell announcement. And none of us can actually understand just how much damage it might have done to some of those listeners. And then Jesus dropped a second bombshell. And it could have been expressed something like this. 
So, since the Father is about to operate differently than in the past, so show yourselves to be genuine members of his family by responding to people just like he will be doing. It's kind of a paraphrase of verse 44. Since God is going to begin to operate differently, your heavenly Father, you show that you belong to his family as you begin to operate differently too. And you begin responding to people, even the evil people, the sinful people in the world, the way that I'm going to tell you he does and will. You see, Jesus could have said to them, no longer are you going to be walking in the footsteps of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the footsteps of Moses and Joshua. In the footsteps of Gideon and Samson and Jephthah. In the footsteps of Saul and David and Samuel. All of them. They will no longer be the action heroes that you and your children will seek to imitate. The Father is not asking you to take up the baton that they have laid down. You're going to walk in the footsteps of the Son of God. You're going to walk in the footsteps of the one who has come not to condemn the world, but to save it. And to demonstrate the love of God in it. See, your response to the people of this world, Jesus could have said, like the response of the Father and his own response would be a response like no other. Like no other that any Jewish person had ever made before him. And now with that implied transition, Jesus then shared with them some of the elements of this uniquely God-demonstrated response that they should be getting ready to put into action. Two big categories of actions. And both of them are radical, and they're pretty similar, but Jesus identified them a bit differently, so we will too. And in both of them, and in all others that apply, Jesus is saying... I believe this is what he's saying in a phrase. Wherever you are, whoever you encounter, especially when you encounter this sinful, wicked, hurtful people in this world, be seen as an asset, not as an adversary. Now that's, that's radically different. We human beings always like to divide things into two. Those like me, those not like me. Men, women, good people, bad people. Christians, unbelievers. Righteous, sinful. Those that have been saved from God's wrath and those who, man, any minute it's going to hit them. We just love to do that. And Jesus is basically saying those categories are going to be handled differently. 
rather than waiting for the judgment of God to fall upon these people who so deserve it, and sometimes recognizing God might actually use me to dish out a little bit of it myself, he says, I want you to look at the situation differently. Completely differently. First of all, He says, you, who should be showing yourselves to be children of your Father in heaven, who does make the rain fall upon and causes the sun to shine upon both the evil and the good, do not resist. Verse 39 we're looking at. Do not resist or fight back against an evil person. Jesus actually said that. Go ahead and say it. I give you permission. This is nuts. Do you think the people of his day didn't say, come on, I can believe he's from Nazareth. Those people up there don't have a clue what life is really like. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Did you hear what he said? Our whole Jewish identity is based upon being the good guys and frequently God using us to punish the bad guys. Don't resist them. Do not resist an evil person. Jesus said that right in verse 39. And then Jesus goes on because the world was full of evil people. Their Jewish country was filled with an invading force. They were under the thumb of the Roman Empire that worshipped the emperor as Caesar who had pagan gods and statues to them and temples built to them, who mocked the Jewish faith, who mocked the God of Israel, who made life as miserable as they could for these Jewish people living in this ugly corner of the world. So Jesus then gives four examples that comes right out of their life. I bet we could come up with four examples that come out of our life. Think of the four most miserable people you know. The people who make your life the most miserable on the face of the earth. Just go ahead, do it right now. Stop at four. Okay, now Jesus is, is going to point out to them things they were all familiar with. Four examples of it. He says, talking about this evil person that you're not to resist, I'm going to use the pronoun he in all four of these, referring to that guy or that type of person, Jesus says, if he strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left. That's in verse 39 still. So he smacks you on the, on the right side of your face. He's angry at you. He's irritated at you. You've ticked him off somehow, or at least he says he is, and he feels justified in just smacking you on the side of your face. Jesus says, if he does that, Turn to him the other side. See, that's a physical situation, and it speaks to physical suffering. In one way or another, Jesus is saying that you, I, am to be willing to endure that for the sake of the kingdom. The getting even, the pointing out to him right there what a mean-spirited person he is. That's not your call. That's not your place. Somehow, 
your response, my response, is to actually make as little a deal out of this as we can. So in anger, he, she smacks you in the face and you just turn the other side and wait for the next one without smacking back, without saying, what was that all about? Boy, are you a nasty person. No, Jesus didn't say, read him the riot act. Somehow, this is a person that is not seeking to follow after God, is not seeking to obey the, the, the desires of Christ. This is just a person that is completely contrary to you, really. And something has come up that is so incensed this person that they come into your presence and just smack you right in the mouth, right in the cheek. And Jesus says, take that. Take that for the sake of the kingdom. Because God might be, the next few steps might be life-changing for this person. The way you've responded like nobody else would ever respond. So he just gives that example. If he strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him to the left. Secondly, he says in verse 40, if he sues you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Now that's a legal situation. Speaks of some kind of legal liability. This is a guy who's able to sue you. He says you've wronged him. And he's going to sue you for your shirt. And Jesus says, well, don't throw down your, your hands and, and get ready to fight. Just give him your coat too. Don't make his suit the deal that determines the relationship you have with him. Just suck it up. Take it. By this time, the crowd's already thinning down a little more. I mean, what kind of a lifestyle is Jesus talking about here? You almost think Jesus was going to be somebody that was going to get smacked in the face. I'd like to see him take it. Well, he did, didn't he? They were nailing nails into his hands when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. What do you mean they don't know what they're doing? They don't know the significance of what they're doing. And so, Father, I'm not asking you to release me from this cross so that I can take a hammer and nail them to it and see what they think about it. Father, just forgive them. Just forgive them. And that might have been on the first hand. And then stretch out your other one. Because they're not going to nail them both and then going to nail your feet. So it's not like Jesus was preaching something here he wasn't planning to practice. If he sues you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Basically, he's saying, be willing to suffer loss, even of something tangible, for the sake of the kingdom. And then here's one. If he compels you to go with him one mile, go with him two. Now, that's a governmental situation. And it speaks to institutional authority. Jesus is saying, kind of, if I could put a casual word in his mouth. Jesus is saying, you are willing, be willing to knuckle under 
for the sake of the kingdom. Now let me tell you about that situation just a little bit. You see, this came up, and Jesus could say, if he compels you to go with him one mile, go too. This is a result of the Roman government and the Roman soldiers being the invading troops in the land of Israel, and they were everywhere. They were law and order. They ruled with an iron hand if they wanted to. And one of the Roman regulations, and Rome was great at making regulations, Roman law was really pretty precise, designed to have an orderly society. And Roman law said that any soldier could conscript, could commandeer any Jewish person and compel that person, if necessary, if needed, to carry the soldier's luggage, his armor, his baggage, whatever it might be, for him. But Roman law would say you can't make him go more than a mile. At the one-mile mark, you can grab somebody else. Remember Cyrus uh, when, or Simon of Cyrene when Jesus was carrying his cross and he fell beneath it, couldn't go any further, the Roman soldiers grabbed a citizen. Who ha- the Roman soldiers didn't lift up that cross, even though they would have been strong enough to do it. They just grabbed a guy who was walking in, who was in the crowd, and made him carry the cross. So Jesus says here, if you're in a position where you are commandeered, and upon... He's just painting a picture for them. What they might do, and here's the way I paint it. What if? See, because he says if he commandeers you to go one mile, that's what he's legally limited to, and you offer to go two, how would that work out? Well, just picture this. What if you as a Jewish citizen had been so commandeered, and upon being chosen you picked up that soldier's gear cheerfully. And on the way, the one mile, and on the way, you expressed your gratitude to that soldier for the protection from robbers and barbarians that he and his fellow soldiers provide for you. And when you had completed the required one mile, you said, if you'd like. If you'd like, I could carry your stuff another mile. That would be a response like no Jewish citizen had ever given or would even think of giving. And yet Jesus said, if he compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now imagine this with me. What if, what if indeed a, a Jewish man responded that way? Could you imagine that very soldier saying to his comrades that evening, I met the most unusual Jew today. He really seemed to appreciate and care about me. And when I asked him why, he said, I'm just trying to respond to you the way my heavenly father would. Blew my mind. Just imagine. Just imagine if that were to happen. The very thing that Jesus was encouraging to happen. Now, Jesus didn't say, go with them cheerfully. We're adding that in. But wouldn't that just add to the impact? Why else would a Jewish man say, I'll go too? 
unless somehow he's communicated a willingness to help, to be an asset rather than a threat. And then there's just one more example Jesus gives of the, of the beggar or the person asking for money, and, and since it's in this context, is probably a pretty unreliable person. He says if he asks, verse 42, if he asks for your help, give him the help <clears throat> that he asks for. Now that's a social situation. And it speaks to human vulnerability. Somebody in need. Somebody saying they're in need. And Jesus is basically saying, be willing to deny yourself for the sake of the kingdom and help this person. Now those were four very real life situations that people of Jesus' day were involved in. And things like that we might be involved in ourselves. Certainly social situations and governmental situations and legal situations and, and even physical situations. These are situations where Jesus identifies the radical unexpected response that our Heavenly Father would have us, his earthly children, give. Now here's a second category of actions that are just a little bit more generalized, not as specific as a soldier grabbing you or, or these things. Jesus just says that, but there are situations that could or, or would cause us distress and so speaking more broadly, Jesus now says, love your enemies, whoever they are. People who are not desiring to do good to you, but harm to you. And perhaps have even done harm to you. Love your enemies, desire good for them. And he says, so pray for them. Pray for them. Oh, God, give them what they deserve. That's not a good prayer. Jesus is saying, pray for them. Pray for them that the very thing that your Heavenly Father desires to do will in fact be done. And in whatever way they need the sun to shine upon them to give warmth and encouragement, and whatever way they need the rain to come into their life to nurture and flourish something good and wholesome, Father, bring that. Bring that. Father, do your thing in their life right now. You who are not at this time judging and condemning, but have come to save and to demonstrate love in this period of earth history. Pray for them. Ask God to bless them and to open their eyes and hearts to his truth. And then provide for them. Love them. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, well feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Provide in whatever way you can. Find ways to lighten their load. Bring both the warmth of the sun and the refreshment of the rain into their lives in whatever way you can. I'm not going to mention any names today. I thought about that. But then uh, this goes on over the whole anybody. And so I just thought I'd do this, because we might not have a common name that we'd come to. Think of, of the worst politician you can think of right now. And don't say anything out loud. 
Just think of the worst part. It might be a very local one. It might be someone a little further away. It might be one in Washington. It might be one overseeing the whole world in one way. But think of the one that you would think is most, you might say, your enemy of goodness and righteousness and what you believe is even godly in this world. How many of you have thought of the one? Can you picture him or her? Now picture this. Tonight, you've invited that person for dinner. Yeah, see? Now, now, we're getting, now we're getting to it. Okay, you've invited that person for dinner. And by God's grace, because you are a child of God, and God's Holy Spirit is working overtime to prepare you, when that person comes to your front door, in some remarkable way, there's a click that goes on inside your brain, and, and you just see this person as a human being coming to your door. Without a whole bunch of preconceived notions or conclusions or actions that you might take. You don't want it to be in the news tomorrow. So-and-so went, so-and-so, and she's never seen, been seen since. No, this person comes into your house and sits down at your table and you are overwhelmed in a way you never have been before and actually can hardly believe it's happening that this is a human being like you. A human being with fears and anxieties and hopes and family and, and a person that perhaps is feeling the pressure of life and the pressure of even doing the thing they're doing that you think they're doing very badly, but they're still feeling the pressure of doing it. And you sit there and lo and behold, out of your mouth, before you could, these words come. What could I do to help? And once they're out there, you can't take them back. What can I do to help? I don't mean help you with your political agenda. I mean, what can I do to help you feel better about yourself? What can I do to help you understand the incredible love that my Heavenly Father has for you? How can I help you flourish as a human being? knowing that we share that same reality. We are human beings living in a world that is not at all helpful to anything we're seeking to do. See, how, how would that work out? Might that person who does a Google search on you and find out you're one of those blankety-blank born-again believers have to say when they get back to wherever their cronies are to say, I met a most interesting person. I met a most interesting person. I know she or he doesn't agree with uh, a lot of the stuff we're doing, but somehow I got the impression that person cares about me beyond the political stuff, cares about me as a human being, and wanted to tell me something about the God she believes in or he believes in. It was really strange, really different. 
I thought all those people were out to get us. I met one. It seemed like she wanted to somehow benefit my life as opposed to end it. See, Jesus is saying, we have not been sent into the world any longer to be God's hammer and nail. We have not been sent into the world to be God's club to set things right. This world will never be right. We've been sent now to demonstrate we are children of a heavenly father who has chosen for this period of time to cause his sun to shine upon both the righteous and the unrighteous and to let the rain fall and bless both the good and the evil. And if we're with him, how does that viewpoint create responses in us that really reflect him? And I'll tell you, that's, a, that's about as hard a thing as we could ever even imagine doing, even wanting to do it. It's always been comforting to know we're one of the good guys. And if we can stick it to them, stick it to them. Why shouldn't they know they're dirty, rotten sinners? They're dirty, rotten sinners. Until we get into God's presence, he says, remember when you were a dirty, rotten sinner? Guess what? You still have a bunch of that still in you. The difference between you and them is so small compared to the difference between you and me that I don't even keep score. You're all in the same fallen condition. It's only by my love and grace that I view you differently than I view them. And if you can be used in some way to communicate my view of them to them, then we got something going. And they might actually begin to believe that I am the way I am. But when you're still living like King David in the Old Testament, looking for some, you know, sinful pagan to cut his head off, they don't learn much about me as I am right now and as I seek to minister and involve myself in this world right now. So golly, Jesus starts right at the beginning of his ministry just saying, do not resist an evil person. They're everywhere. And you got a little bit of that in you too. Do not resist them, but seek to be an asset to them rather than a threat to them. The day is coming, they will stand judgment. Don't think they're getting away with anything. Judgment will come, but this day, there's the possibility of grace entering into their life and changing them forever. They come to know my son who loved them, who came not to condemn them, to save them, and they might actually get saved, just like you did. See, and so this response is so radical to what we're used to doing. We who join the good side to fight against the bad side, however we define it. That warfare is Old Testament. We need, to, we need to live in the New Testament. We need to live that God will judge at the end of time, and you and I are to represent a God who desires that all men be saved right now. 
and make all of your responses consistent with a heavenly father who wants to bless all men. Now, men can spit on his blessings. We know that. But he wants to. They can spit on the things that you offer. Of course they can. But you want to offer them. Your heavenly father wants to offer them. And to be viewed as one of his. So our final thought, we'll just get right down to it here. Desiring good, not evil for all men. Circle the word all. Desiring good, not evil for all men. Ministering grace to all men. Grace means cutting them a little slack. Grace means providing them things to to get to where on their own they could not get. Things they don't deserve, but would be helpful and enjoyable to them. Ministering grace to all men by whatever means we can is indeed a response like no other. I just want us to get to the place where all the people who would know us would say, that little church over there is like like nothing else I've ever seen. I've been in a lot of churches in my life. And I've been recruited for causes again and again and again and again. And over there in that little place, I never felt like I was recruited for a cause to join a team, to put on a uniform, to demonstrate what side I'm on in this great battle for the soul of America. I just found people who welcomed me in and who desired that I would get to know the one they believe is the living God who can provide for me eternal life. See, it's a, it's a weird group. Different group. Unlike other churches I've been in. I like it when somebody comes in who's never been in a church in their life and they just assume this is normal. This is the way people treat each other everywhere. We can be that. We need to be that. Jesus says... Be that. And those letters are in bright red. And we got to deal with them. And then we have to embrace them. And then we have to delight ourselves in them. Heavenly Father, that day that Jesus launched his ministry, really, he covered just about every topic he was going to cover and demonstrate for the next three years. And this one right here, talking to people who were living under the thumb of an arduous, invading force. He was actually telling them to look at those soldiers differently. And only by the grace of God could they. And Father, we remember the time it it was a high-ranking Roman officer who even came to Jesus then and said, "Could could you minister to my servant? I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof, but would you, I know what a loving, miracle working man you are. Would you minister to this one who means so much to me? And the crowd would say, I remember when Jesus talked about that way back in the beginning. And here he is doing it. Loving the Roman. Ministering to the Roman. Because his heart 
is completely linked to yours, Father. May that be true of us. May our hearts be so linked to yours that our behavior starts matching yours and our response to people, all people, begins to match yours in this marvelous age of grace that we are part of. We ask this now in Jesus' name for the sake of his wonderful church. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.